Please turn with me then in your scriptures to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. So we'll be concluding chapter 4, looking at verses 35 to 41. So Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Brothers and sisters, hear with me then the reading of God's Word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey Him? Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Now at the outset of this sermon series, I said to you, that Mark's main goal, his main purpose in writing is to explain to his audience, to explain to the hearers who Christ is. And so this is going to be a a reoccurring theme that we see throughout the entirety of this Gospel as Mark is presenting Christ to the hearer. And as he's doing so, he's making us draw a conclusion. He's making us answer the question, who is Christ? Now, throughout history, the church has had to develop and defend a doctrine of Christ in order to ward off those who sought to brought a new teaching into the church, which was a deficient teaching about Christ. Usually, it was teaching a half of a Christ. And as we all know, half a Christ really is no Christ at all. Right? Getting Christ right, understanding who Christ is, is necessary for salvation. And so the early church sought to defend that true and historic and biblical view of Christ. And so to them we owe a great deal of gratitude. It is through their efforts that orthodoxy has been maintained. And yet it did not come without a great struggle. They had to come and bring to us and give to us and to decipher a clear explanation of what the Bible teaches us concerning who Christ is, all the while using understandable language, while not falling into the theological pitfalls and ditches that surrounded them. Now, the opponents of the early church, I want you to understand, I mean, many of these people are bishops in the church. And so, them being opponents of the, of the early church was not in some way that they could be underhanded. They weren't trying to do something malicious. 
They were simply trying to understand for themselves what the Scripture teaches about God and about the person of Christ. Yet unfortunately for them, they went down those heretical paths. They fell into those theological ditches that by God's grace, the early church fathers did not. In fact, it was during the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries that we had people like uh, Arius who formulated this doctrine that that Christ actually was the first created creature. That He was not eternal, but rather that there was a time in which He was called into existence by God. Then you have Sibelius, who said that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are forms, or they're manifestations, in which the one God manifests Himself. Or then you had someone like Nestorius, who said that, Well, if Christ has two natures, then Christ likewise must be two persons. If he has two natures, he must be two persons who exist in that one body. Right? Or we have someone like Eutyches who said, well, if Christ is one person, then those two natures must be blended and mingled together, so really the divine nature swallows up the human nature, and so you really only have one person and one nature. These are the type of arguments that the early church are having to arm themselves and to fight against. And I'm sure as many of you are sitting here today and you're, and you're hearing me read these, off these heretical doctrines to you, you're saying to yourself, this sounds a lot like what we hear religious groups espouse today, isn't it? And you'd be right. These heretical doctrines are just being recycled over and over and over again. Which is why it's so important for us to continue to contend for that once and for all faith delivered to the saints. Right? Not trying to reinvent the wheel, not trying to come up with our own doctrine, but rather standing shoulder to shoulder with the Orthodox saints throughout all of history. Right? But in order to do that, brothers and sisters, we ourselves cannot deviate. We ourselves cannot fall down those theological pitfalls. We must continue on down that straight and narrow. But in order to do that, we have to understand ourselves who Christ is. We have to ourselves see it in the Scriptures. We ourselves have to answer that question. Who is Christ? And we're going to look to do just that this morning by looking at three points, asking ourselves what this text reveals to us about who the person of Christ is. And so point number one, is that Christ is to be fully trusted. Christ is to be fully trusted. Point number two is that Christ controls nature. Christ controls nature. And the third point is that Christ is to be feared. Christ is to be feared. So He's to be fully trusted. He controls nature. And He is to be feared. So point one, that Christ is to be fully trusted. Now on this day, we're told that They are on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus has concluded His teaching. This is teaching that began, brothers and sisters, all the way in verse 1 of chapter 4 with the parable of the sower. So Jesus has been teaching for a long time. And now it's brought to a conclusion and He's ready now to go across to the other side of the sea, which we are told in chapter 5 of verse 1 is the country of the Gerasenes, which we'll read next week. Now, the Sea of Galilee was a place that was ripe for fishermen. This is where they made their living, in the Sea of Galilee. 
And as you recall, Jesus has two sets of brothers who are fishermen as apostles, right? Andrew and Simon, James and John. So these are men who are very knowledgeable of the sea. They're very capable men of the sea. Now the Sea of Galilee itself is 13 miles in length and about seven and a half miles wide, surrounded by mountains. It's surrounded by mountains. So it makes for the perfect environment for these high winds to sweep in and cause these sudden storms. In fact, the Sea of Galilee was known as having sudden storms. Yet usually these would come in the afternoon. And these wise fishermen would know this. And so they would do their fishing in the morning or at night so as to avoid these storms. And so you would imagine, right, this, the, as Jesus says, let's, let's cross to the other side of the sea at night, that the fishermen who are on this boat who are going to take Jesus there figure it's a pretty safe bet, don't they? And yet, as we learn, they were in for far more than they could have ever expected. Right? This was to be no routine boat ride. And don't we all know what that's like, to have our routines interrupted? I mean, many of us, we drive every, you know, every day. We, we go somewhere and we come home. It's a routine that we do, especially if you go to work or you go to the store. And yet, what happens when you're doing that? Right? You're not thinking about an accident, right? You have a million other things in your mind. You're not thinking that your schedule, that your ride is going to be interrupted. And yet all of a sudden the, the car speeds through the red light and it hits you. And all of a sudden you're faced with this sudden fear and you don't know what to do because you've never been in this, uh, in this situation before. Or I can give you a, a real life example of what just recently happened. I was reading in the news last week. I don't know if any of you seen that Utah man who was walking in a, a canyon path. And as he's walking this canyon path, which I'm sure is a routine thing he did, he comes across these little uh, cougar pups, or cougar cubs, whatever you call them. And he thinks, man, they're so cute. And so he pulls out his, his phone and he begins to record them. And then all of a sudden, what jumps out at him? The mother. And for six whole minutes, the mother stalks him on this path and he is filming while walking backwards the whole time in fear for his life. And at the end of those six minutes, finally, after making many lunges at the man and stopping within feet of him, that cougar turns around and sprints away. But you can imagine the fear and the terror he's in. How his routine hikes in that canyon path have been altered forever, haven't they? And so I can imagine the fear that this man had is very similar to the fear that the apostles had on the boat this day because they both thought that they were going to die. Perhaps many of you have had uh, near-death experiences, so you as well can kind of empathize and, and understand what it is that the uh, apostles here are feeling. Now oftentimes, brothers and sisters, what people though fail to realize is that in these interruptions in our routines, God is testing us. In these interruptions in our routines, God is testing us. Right? Many times we find ourselves in precarious situations because of our own doing, right? because of our own sin, because of our own fault. But then there are many times that we find ourselves in these situations not because of any sin of our own, but because of God's doing. God places us there. 
And this is exactly what happens to the disciples in our text today. They were doing nothing wrong. They were following and being obedient to God. And so, contrary to popular opinion, what we learn is that the Lord does lead us into difficult circumstances. The Lord does lead us through dark valleys. But He does it in order that by the testing of fire, we are refined. And so, we must ask ourselves, when things get hot, when things get uncomfortable for us, how do we respond? Right? Do we turn to Christ in faith? Do we become fully dependent upon Him in those moments? Do we trust Him and His promises? Or do we in those times forget what God has spoken to us? In those times do we forsake our trust in Him because we are so consumed with what is going on in our own life and in that, that own time period? We are so in fear and in terror that we forget to trust in God and think only about ourselves. This is the sin that the disciples commit in our text here today. You see, the disciples have been with Jesus for a while now. They've seen all of His miraculous acts. They've heard all that He said. And they've said, we believe. They've seen Jesus right, teach in the synagogue as one with authority that they've never seen before. They've seen Him heal the man with the unclean spirit. They've seen Him heal Peter's mother-in-law. They've seen Him heal the paralytic and tell Him, your sins are forgiven. They were there when Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. They were sitting before Him as He told these parables. When He opened their ears and their eyes to hear and to see. And yet at this very moment, they act no different than that rebellious and unbelieving crowd that stood before Jesus who only wanted those physical miracles, who wanted their broken bodies fixed. The disciples in this very moment only care about their own physical and natural lives. They forgot to trust in Christ. They forgot to trust in Him knowing that whose plan was it for them to cross the sea to begin with? In verse 35, what are we told? On that day when evening had come, Jesus says to them, let us go across to the other side. You see, they failed to trust Jesus. They failed to trust His lead. They failed to trust His Word. They failed to trust in His promises. The storm, this scary situation that has now interrupted their routine, which was capable of doing great bodily harm to them, caused them to be diverted from trusting in Christ. And now many Christians, I'm sure, when they open this text and they read this for themselves, they walk away patting themselves on the back saying, man, I can't believe that these apostles would be so unfaithful to Christ. I would never do that. And yet, if we took time to examine ourselves, which we don't do often enough, we would see that we are very much just like these apostles. So often, we lose faith and we lose trust in Christ. Think about it. When you've lost your job, perhaps at some point in your life, did you ever lose trust in Christ? When you 
became sick with some severe illness or maybe a family member did, a cancer diagnosis? Was your attention diverted away from trusting in Christ? Perhaps you had troubles at work or troubles in your marriage or maybe when COVID-19 first hit, did you stop fully trusting in Christ? We need to make it a point, brothers and sisters, to pray often that God would still our hearts when we come into those testings and in those trials. Because we ought not fail to realize that these disciples did something that none of us have done. They have literally given up their livelihood to follow Christ. And yet, in the moment of greatest fear, they stop trusting in Him and they become unraveled by terror. And so how much more do you think is necessary for us those who haven't forsaken everything to follow Christ, who haven't given up our livelihoods, how much more do you think we need the aid of God so that we don't forsake Him and forsake our trust in Him when trials and testings come? We need it. We need it bad. Now, Peter is one of the men on this boat this day. And if you recall from the introduction and to the letter of Mark, I said, that Mark is recounting many times the stories that Peter is telling him. Right? Mark's not on this boat, but Peter is. And we can tell by the precision of what is being said here. Right? I mean, he even points out there's a, there's a cushion that Jesus' head is resting on on the back of the boat. And so I can only imagine that Peter is vividly remembering what took place on this day when he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You see, Peter saying, being a disciple of Christ does not exempt you from storms. And Peter knew that literally, not just figuratively. He's saying when these storms come, we are to turn to Christ in faith. We are to trust in His Word. And we are to rejoice that we share in His sufferings. Now the disciples in our text actually do part of this. right? They, They actually know well enough to turn to Christ. As these waters rage and they overtake the boat, they were smart enough to turn to Christ. Yet the problem is that they turned to Him for the wrong reasons and with the wrong heart disposition. And in fact, in this very moment, they treated Christ worse than those unbelieving crowds did in rejecting Him in their rebuke of Him in verse 38. They treated Christ worse in their rebuke of Him than those unbelieving crowds did in rejecting Christ. We're told that if this great windstorm takes place and these waves are crashing against the boat and it's starting to take on water, and what is Jesus doing the entire time? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. As His disciples are in great fear and terror, they think that they're about to lose their lives and they look over and they see their leader, their teacher, their master, and He is sleeping And all they can do is get angry with Him. And so they rebuke Him in verse 38 saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They are questioning whether Jesus Christ 
cares for them. They are saying, I thought you loved us, but obviously you don't. Because as we're terrified that we're about to die, all you can do is lay there and sleep. Remember, these men are not strangers. These are men who have lived day after day after day with Christ and experienced the grace of Christ in their life more than anyone else on the earth had. This is what makes that question so very awful. And oftentimes, brothers and sisters, we might not verbalize that, but I think a lot of times we question God's care for us in our heart, don't we? We question His care for us in their heart. But how can the disciples, or how can any one of us ever question God's care for us when He loves us with a love that is indescribable? He loves us with a love in which Christ came into the world to suffer and die that we might be with Him forever. And so what should we do when those moments come? When we question God's love for us? When we question God's care for us. When we say to God, why aren't you answering my prayer? You know what we ought to do, brothers and sisters? We ought to repent. When you question God's love, when you question God's faithfulness, when you question God's care, you ought to repent. For everything that God does is right. And we have no right to question or rebuke our King. If you are a believer here today, Jesus cares for you beyond all manner of comprehension. So remind yourselves when trials come that they are mere testings. Jesus is saying through them, trust in Me. Remember My promises. Become fully dependent on Me and I will take care of you. Every test is an opportunity for you to glorify God. Jonah failed. If you remember in the book of Jonah, the Lord tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them of their sin. And what does Jonah do in that moment? He flees the presence of God. He abandons God. He forsakes God does not trust in God. Job passed. What do we read in Job? God allows Satan to sift Job. And no matter what Job lost, he would not curse God, but continued to bless His name. And so I ask, what would you do? What would you do in those times of trials and testings? Will you forsake Christ? Will you forsake your trust in Him? Or will you bless Him in it? Using it as an opportunity to glorify God. Trials are times to trust Christ fully. To bless His name. Recognizing that He has purchased us by His blood. And that He will keep all of His promises just as He did with the apostles here in our text. For we are told, they make it over to the other side of the sea, don't they? Now this storm that caused the disciples one type of fear will now bring them another type of fear in the response that Jesus gives. And so this takes us then to point number two, which is Christ controls nature. Now the disciples, like many people today, are confused by not only the words of Christ, but the actions of Christ. 
They don't know how to fully kind of take it all in and, and comprehend what's going on in the Scriptures. Right? They see Jesus gets tired, just like you and I. The disciples see Him sleeping in the back of the boat. And now they're saying, well, how does this all compute with what else I've seen of Jesus? Because they were with Jesus as He forgave some man's sins. And they know that only God can do that. And yet they know that God doesn't get tired. And so they're trying to process this information in real time. Right Right now we have the 66 books of the Bible. They do not have that. This is unfolding. It's manifesting itself right before their eyes. And so what do they see? In verse 39 we're told this, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. At that moment, the wind ceased and there was a a great calm over all of the sea. And the apostles were amazed. They were amazed at this. And we get a little sneak peek into how amazed they were by their response in verse 41 when they say, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? We're oftentimes amazed by nature's power, aren't we? When we see these giant tornadoes just ripping through cities, right, tearing through them, all buildings and trees and everything to the ground. We're amazed when we see that. We're in awe of its power. Or when we see the, the high winds and the raging seas of hurricanes, right? We're in awe of that. And why is that? Because as we look at them and we see them, we say to ourselves, we are just creature. We can't do anything to stop this. We are at nature's mercy. And yet we, just like these apostles, understood that there is only one who has authority over wind and sea, and that one is its creator who is God. The apostles are very familiar with the Old Testament, and so they sit there astonished as Jesus, the carpenter's son, by the power of His Word, stills nature, causes the raging waters to cease, And be still. And at this very moment, they're probably thinking back to Exodus 14 and the parting of the Red Sea. They're probably thinking about Psalm 89 verse 9 where it says of God, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And now they stand before the One who at the creation of the world gathered the waters together and parted them from dry land and made and called dry land earth and called these waters seas. And they are amazed. They are astonished at this one who Paul says in first in Colossians chapter one verse sixteen that by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Yet unfortunately, I think many Christians today would be in shock to learn that God still controls nature today. For many Christians, they think, well, God, He has a hand in my spiritual life, but He kind of just leaves nature to itself. But this is not what the Bible teaches us. In Amos chapter 3, verse 6, what are we told? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? 
You see, since Jesus is not only human, but divine, he must have power over nature. Because if he doesn't, who does? And whoever does must be more powerful than him. But because God is all-powerful, and since He controls nature, by His power, we as Christians can take comfort that by that same power, He has brought about and secured our redemption. And it is by that same power that today He upholds the world and He upholds you and I until Christ returns. Now it's important also for us to see that Jesus, the One who quiets storms, can also quiet our rebellion against Him. Christ, the One who subdues the seas, likewise can subdue the sinner and their heart. Yet this only could be accomplished by the God-man. He had to be both human and divine. The eternal Son of God taking upon Himself human flesh. This is why the formulations of these early church creeds are so vitally important. Because they summarized the Christian faith and at the same time they excluded all those heretical interpretations of who Christ is. Those interpretations that sought to reduce Jesus to maybe an exalted man and deny His divinity. Or to make Him all divine and deny His humanity, saying it's just an appearance of flesh. It's not true flesh. Well, that, brothers and sisters, is not an adequate Savior. And Francis Turretin points this out. Our need for a Savior to be both God and man when he says this, Christ was man to suffer and God to overcome. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying. God to apply it to us by His overcoming. Man to become ours by the assumption of the flesh. God to make us like Himself by the bestowal of the Spirit. This neither man nor God could do alone. Man alone could die for men. God alone could vanquish death. And this is whom the apostles now are standing before. And what is their response in realizing now a great deal more about who Jesus is based on what He has just demonstrated to them? We are told that they are filled with great fear in verse 41. The Greek literally reads, they feared with great fear. They feared with great fear. And this takes us to our third and final point. Christ is to be feared. You see, because Christ is divine, He is to be feared. Jesus says in verse 40 to them, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? In the midst of the storm, they were afraid and they did not trust. But that, brothers and sisters, was a cowardly fear. That was a cowardly fear. Now get something right. It's, it's not cowardly to fear. It's natural. But what's cowardly about it is the immoderate amount of fear they had. A fear that caused them to forsake trust in Christ. A fear that made them forget who it was was on that boat with them. A fear that made them forget who was on their side. That was a cowardly fear. But now, after they see what Christ has done, the fear that they have is an awe-inspiring fear. It is a reverential fear. It is a fear that all Christians should have for Christ. Must have for Christ. This is the problem I see throughout Christianity today. 
we think and we speak and we behave with no reverence for Christ. When you behold the glory and majesty of Christ, it should not cause you to want to walk up and fist bump Jesus. What it should cause you to do is drop on your knees with your face to the earth as you behold His majesty and His glory and His splendor. And the more He reveals to you, the more He reveals to you, the more childlike your faith and your trust in Him ought to be. The more He reveals to you, the greater your love for Him ought to be. And the greater that your love is, the greater your fear will be, for love engenders fear. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to love Him. Now, fear can either come from terror or from reverence. It can be a slavish fear or a filial fear. And that's F-I-L-I-A-L. Slavish fear or a filial fear. The fear God desires from us as He unveils Himself to us is a filial fear. A fear that comes from the heart. One that comes out of recognition of who God is. You see, a slavish fear does what they're supposed to do because they don't want to get whipped and beaten by their master. But this fear is a holy fear. A filial fear is a holy fear that God produces in the heart of the believer which causes us to delight in pleasing God. And it causes us to take great pains in doing all those things to not displease Him. This is the fear we are to have. This is a fear that only believers can possess. And this is why we know that although the apostles' faith is very weak on this boat, they are believers. Because only the regenerate person can have a filial fear. Because it takes knowledge of God to have this fear. No unregenerate person can have this type of fear because they do not have knowledge of God. Only the regenerate. This is one reason, brothers and sisters, that we know why Scripture is real. And the, the God of the Scripture is real. That He is true. That He is who He says He is. And why we can know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and never written because of the will of any man. It's because we would never create a God like this. We would never create a God like this. We would create for ourselves a God who allows us to indulge ourselves in every form of sin. We would never create a holy God. Unregenerate man doesn't want a God who punishes sin. Right? That's why people today create a God who does what? Loves everyone equally, will overlook all sin, and make sure everyone gets to heaven. Unregenerate man does not want a holy God. But it is only through the inworking of the Spirit that causes us now, as believers, to desire a God such as we have. You would not want that apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And in having revealed this to us through faith and having unpacked this text now, we have come to the point in our text that Mark wants us to be. At the end of verse 41, he wants us to be asking ourselves the question, Who is Christ? He wants us to answer the question that the disciples posed in verse 41 when they said, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey Him. 
and upon careful consideration. There is only one conclusion that can be drawn, right? That Jesus is both human and divine. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your holy Scriptures. We thank You that You have revealed them to babes such as us. We pray, Father, that You would use Your Word this day and impress it upon our hearts and our minds that we might use every opportunity to glorify our Father who is in heaven. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.